0: great to be together this Sunday, and we are going to be studying God's Word together. But before I want to ask you a question, <clears throat> here's the question. It's not a, not a shallow one. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? What does it mean to be human? I thought I'd help kick off your thoughts with some people's opinions. Let's start with our uh, Nelson, our very own Nelson Mandela, said this, he said, what counts in life is not the mere fact that we have lived, it is what difference we have made to the lives of others that will determine the significance of the life we lead. So it's about how we care for others. How about um, another South African, Elon Musk, who's doing rather well at the moment, he says, the meaning of life is to understand the nature of the universe and figure out what the meaning of life is. Slightly cryptic, but I think what Elon Musk is trying to get us to understand is if we can figure out what the universe is about, then then we'll know what the right questions to ask are. Let's jump across to Oprah Winfrey. Uh, she believes that we all have a purpose in life, a meaning in life, and we're born with it. But don't expect the clarity to come all at once, to know your purpose right away. For Oprah to fulfill your highest, most truthful expression of yourself as a human being, you need to ask yourself, what makes you alive? And a final example, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, he's quite uh, specific in the way he looks at things. He says, I imagine myself as an eight-year-old looking back on my life, and I say, I want to minimize the number of regrets I will have. That is how I find meaning in life, As I kind of do what is referred to as a regret minimization exercise or framework. Now, that's a small sample, and you probably want to include a few more people when you are answering this question yourself, and my simple question right up front is to ask, well, which voice would you allow in? Would, would you listen to those that I've collected here? Are you thinking through family members, examples from your own life? And I think it's quite tricky, right? Because often we'll acknowledge that there are people who've spoken to our lives that are fantastic in some areas, but yet have made shipwrecks of their lives in others. So you, so part of you is like, I want to listen to them in this, but not, not in these areas, right? And I include... Uh, you know people from church communities and that it feels like we often have some great examples in some areas but some poor examples in others but the question still remains what is life about it's a question that loves to pop out at 3 a.m. in the morning or 4 a.m. right and we ask ourselves the question am i missing something am i living my life well or even how do i even know if i'm doing well what's the scorecard and if I just sum it up if, as I walk through exclusive books and I look at what books are the most popular and the books that are selling well, I would say that a lot of the focus on this question is less about trying to answer it, as in, what is the meaning of life? I think what most people are saying is it's up to you to decide what the meaning of life is. Most people just settle on that. And so most of the books are actually tactics that are trying to get you in position to answer that question. So you have books like The 5 AM Club, Atomic Habits, The Power of Habit, Tiny Habits, The Subtle Art of Not Giving 12 Rules for Life. And what you often find when you read these books and you get into the detail, they're incredibly helpful at saying, hey, there are a whole bunch of cul-de-sacs and areas you don't want to go down. Here are tactics to get you in position, waking you up early getting you into the moment to think about life. And they've they've done incredibly well because people are crying out for direction. In a world that says, hey, it's up to you to do whatever you want, people are like, that's not helpful. I want things that'll give me handles to help me deal with this life. And a lot of what they're saying is you shouldn't be ricocheting out of your past. You need to deal with your past. And neither should you just sort of be living so in the future that you don't acknowledge the present for what it is, you know, the present that is the present. And that's certainly in the business school I'm involved in. A lot of the literature I read, it really is coming down to this concept of mindfulness and living an intentional life, which is all very good. It's certainly better than an unintentional life or an unexamined life. But I'd say to you that ultimately, having got all the tactics and having all the right habits and all the right routines, you're then still left in a position where you go, okay, I've slept well, I've exercised, got good habits, but what's it all about? <laughs> At the end of the day, once I've done all of that, well, where am I aiming? What's, what's the purpose? What's the real meaning? And I, I wonder if you're asking the question, does Jesus have anything to say about this? And the good news is He does. And we as a community look to Him to be the loudest voice because He is the greatest teacher. I mean, He's more than a teacher. He's God with us, but He's also a great teacher. And we study His life and we study His, his teaching. And we've been doing that through the book of Mark for quite a long time. And in the next two weeks, we're, we're going to be finishing The book of Mark. You'll be very excited after two years of journeying through it. And it's a book that started like this. It's a book that started with the punchline right up front. It said, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, because he is the son of God. He's more than a teacher, he's the son of God, and he's going to give us more than tactics. He's going to include tactics and you need to retreat, you need to be with the father. He's going to give us good wisdom on that, but he's going to do so much more. He's going to also Reveal to us the purpose for life. And so we as a community, when we get together, I trust you're going to be hearing Jesus a lot. You're going to be being encouraged to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he would do. And we as a community, unapologetically, I want to follow him. And we, just did, we just did six weeks of Jesus and sexuality, because when it comes to this confusing area of sexuality, we're saying, Oh, Jesus, what do you have to say? How can we learn from you? And it's not just learning from you, it's then becoming like you and actually following through on what you have to say. And you might think, oh, are you sure it's just Jesus? Well, when we listen to Jesus, we, we notice that he does something quite unique compared to all other teachers. Other teachers, like Buddha, would say, look at my teaching, look at my Dharma. Muhammad would say, no, look at me, I'm a prophet pointing you towards the true God, which is Allah. Jesus does something different. Jesus says, no, look to me. It is about me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's a great word called confidence, as the Americans would say, confidence. I mean, imagine saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That shows confidence, right? That shows that there's something different going on here. And so I've asked the question, what's the meaning of life? And it's a question Jesus himself was asked. And so we're going to look at a passage from the book of Mark, chapter 12, which is essentially going to be the structure for today. What is the meaning of life? What is the most important thing, Jesus? And then we're going to see Jesus warning the people there and warning us how it's possible to miss the most important thing and how it is that he is going to get us back on track. So let's dive into it. It's Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Let's read it, it'll appear on the screen. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, that's Jesus was answering lots of questions at the moment where we are in the book. The scribe asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So this is a real cut to the chase. Jesus, what is it all about? At that time, the rabbinic tradition had 613 commandments from the first five books of the, of the Bible, which is known as the Torah. 365 of those were negative, so don't do these things, one for every day of the week. And 248 were positive. These are things you should be doing. And Jesus is asked the question, you know, there's some here that are quite light, they don't have high consequences. There's some that are heavy, which have high consequences. Which one should I prioritize. It's a great question. It's essentially asking the question, what's the meaning of life? What's, what's it all about, Jesus? Get get to the essence. Let's read Jesus' answer from verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, now notice there's a quote here. He's gonna quote scripture. This isn't Jesus' own words. He's, a, the, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, this would have got the the scribes in the edge of their seat because they would have recognized this. This is Deuteronomy 6, not only there, but Deuteronomy 11 and Romans 15. This is a rather famous passage of Scripture. This is called the Shema, which comes from that one word, Elisha. here, here, the word here is the word Shema. And so, the whole passage was summarized by the Jewish tradition as being the Shema. And even today, it is meant that observant, devout Jews would, in the morning when they rise, recite this passage that Jesus just recited, and at nighttime, they would do the same. And it actually is for a Jewish person, they hope to one day die with the Shema on their lips, that this would be what they say. Uh, we Carl we, and I visited the rabbi just down the street here at the Murray Road Shore, which is the biggest um, observant Jewish uh, community in South Africa. He was telling me. Um, Pref, uh, prof. Uh, not prof. Not uh, Rabbi Davort Weinberg, we spent a fascinating time with him, asking him about the Shema and him unpacking to us what it has to mean. And I'll share some of that with you. But I also want to point you to a great resource which the Bible Project has put together. You'll see a bunch of colorful pictures at the top. They're short sort of four-minute episodes from the Bible Project, free to download, which essentially stop and say, guys, there's a lot in here and we could miss some of it if we don't slow down and actually understand what the, the saying is all about. So I'm giving you a snapshot of what the rabbi taught us and what the Bible project has added, but I encourage you to look at, at what is essentially Jesus' teaching on what is the most important thing. I've mentioned already that word here is very important. It, it means here, oh Israel is saying here, but he's not just saying listen, he's also almost saying pay attention. Pay attention. Exclamation mark. What's interesting in the in the language of the time is there wasn't a word for hear and obey. Right? So we would say, you need to listen and you need to obey, as if they're two different things. At the time, the word shema meant both. It meant, if you really hear this, of course you're going to do it. There's follow through. And so this is what is so important to understand. It's not an optional extra, like, okay, I've heard that, I'm going to weigh it up. No, he's saying, you need to hear and do this at the same time. What do you need to hear and do? You need to first acknowledge that there is a God, there is a Lord. And there's a particular word that gets used, the word your Lord, which is the same word that we, that we know God used of himself to speak from the burning bush. He's saying, it's not a God out there that you're left wondering what he's like. No, it's the God who's revealed himself to the people of Israel, and it's the God who is. I am that I am. And you'd ask Paul, well, what kind of God is this? If, if you're new here, grateful for you visiting, and you, you asked the legitimate question. It seems like there's so many different gods out there. What is this God like? Well, he's, he's identified himself in a burning bush, and he's continued to identify himself through Scripture, and this is probably the best account from Exodus 34 to describe who this God is that we need to pay attention to. Exodus 34, from verse 6 to 7, read this. It said, the Lord, that's the same word, passed before him, which is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? This is this is who we're talking about. Someone who's so full of grace and mercy, but also so full of truth. And so if you're looking at a world that's gone mad and you're thinking, how is it that people can behave like this and they can get away with it? The good news is they're not going to get away with it. The bad news is neither you and I are going to get away with it because if we're honest and we look back on our lives, we know there's some things that we've done to hurt others. That's why it's good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why Mark starts the whole book with that good news that although we're all guilty, there is a God who showing steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so when he says, listen, pay attention, the Lord, the Lord is one. This is the Lord he's talking about. Do you know this Lord? Have you, have you, have you seen him and how he's revealed himself? What do you do with this Lord? Well, you acknowledge that He's at the center. He's one. He's, he's, he's the one who's, who's who's overall and in all. He's the creator. As we chatted to Rabbi Weinberg, he said, you know, the truth is that this, this God is one. That means this whole world is it. We don't just breathe air. We breathe we breathe Yahweh's air. He is, the, he is the creator God. And what do we do in response to this God? We're called to do some things. Well, we're called to love. We're called to love. And again, that word is a word which means more than just a feeling. It's a feeling and an action. It's as deep as you would feel towards a child if you were a parent or towards a spouse. And it's helpful to, again, understand what they would have understood by this word, love. It's something which means more than just affection. Uh, The word ahava uh, is is the word that's used. And essentially, it's a word that's first used of God. And we need to understand this. If we go and look at at, uh, Scripture, we understand that the reason why we can show love is because God first showed love towards us. He chose us, and so it's not because we earned it or we deserve it. It it originates from God's own character. God loves because He is love, and that's why Jeremiah, another prophet of the Old Testament, would say, love is everlasting. Why is love everlasting? Because love didn't have a start. Love has always been part of who God is, and so it will never come to an end. And so it's quite instructive if you go and look at what love means. It's not a word that we can just unpack and decide what it means. We can actually go and look at a God of love and study His life. And we'll go see in Jeremiah 6, just before this incredible sort of shema is recorded, it's told to us that loving God is obeying His commandments all the days of your life. To love God is to love Him and His commandments all the days of your life. To love God also means that we'll teach these commandments to our children and our grandchildren. We'll, we'll, we'll let them in on the truth that they aren't coincidence, but they're created by this God. When they sit, walk, lie down, or rise up, we're going to remember that it is a God who made them, and it is a God who's brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And to love God supremely means you're not going to go after other gods, for He is the one who gives life. So we call to hear that this is who God is, that we're called to love this God, with all our heart, with all our heart. Now, it's interesting if you compare what Jesus is teaching here to what is actually recorded in Deuteronomy, Jesus adds the word mind. Because in Deuteronomy, this first was used when the people of God gathered. They only spoke about the heart. Why? Because the heart actually, at that time, was both the seat of your emotion as well as where your thoughts were thought to reside. As time passed on, by the time Jesus arrived with the Greeks, they'd worked out, no, no, the heart is about the emotions. The mind is happening up here. And Jesus knew the original meaning was always that it would be your heart and your head. It would be your emotions and your thoughts that would be used to worship God. And so Jesus splits out that term heart from, and, and, and allows both to affect us. Both should be committed to God. I think we get that, right? We get that, hey, our best thoughts and our greatest desire should be for the kingdom. But here's an interesting thing which I had forgotten or maybe I never knew around that word soul. We actually went as a family to watch the, the movie Soul, right? And a lot of the kids were confused. <laughs> it, was a, it, was, it was like about a, a soul that kind of leaves the body and floats up into heaven, a, a soul that kind of is a ghost in the machine, so to speak. It's like the part of you that's immaterial, that kind of will live forever. Is this kind of what you think of when you think of the word soul? You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and then your soul. And when you think soul, you're like, spirit, right? But what actually did it mean at that time? The word soul is, that, is a word that actually means throat. It's actually speaking about your, your physical body. It's speaking about the fact that just as your throat thirsts for something more, then, then, you know, it needs something in it. And if you think about it, your, your throat needs food, it needs water. What else does your throat need? It needs breath. Pretty much everything that keeps you alive comes through your throat, whether it's food, water, or your breath. And so what actually... Rabbi Weinberg confirmed what, what is meant by soul is not some spirit thing that floats out there. No, no, it's, it's your physical body. It's, it's loving God with everything you have. And then you see the word strength. You're like, no, but I thought, I thought strength was then, was then the body, the muscles. No, 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 the actual word for strength is a word um, miot, miot, which actually doesn't mean muscles. It means very much. So let me explain what this means. Saying You need to love God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul. I mean, with all your heart, all your mind, all your physical body. And right at the end, it doesn't mean strength. It actually means very much. It means amplified. It means give it all you've got and go for it very muchly, right? Love God as your number one desire. All your heart, all your mind, all your body, muchly. Now, does that mean, oh, is that, the only, is, that, is that limiting it? Are those the only ways I can love God? No, just the opposite is described by the Bible Project in this quote. The point is that everything in a person's life, every moment, every opportunity, every ability, capacity, offers a chance to love and honor the one who made you. It's a call to love God with all of your muchness. And that's the meaning of strength in the Shema. And so that is, that is something which, Our brothers and sisters down the road recite every morning and every evening. That's what they would love to have said on their their dying lips as a way of honoring the God who created them, the God that is one, the God that is our creator. But interestingly, at that point, Jesus doesn't stop. He was asked for the greatest. He gave an answer, but he doesn't stop. He sneaks in a second commandment. As I chatted to Rabbi Weinberg about this, he said, oh, Jesus, ever the rebel, Ever the rebel. I said, yeah, you'd be surprised. He does a few things out there. And this is what he does. Verse 31, he says, the second is this. You ask for one, but I'm giving you two. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus quickly recognizes the problem with loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength is that it can still become project self. It can still be saying, I'm fine with God you know, things are falling apart Yeah, people don't like me, I'm nauseating to work with, I'm on my 12th marriage, you know, shipwreck, but hey, God and I are tight. And Jesus goes, that could be a problem, and so I, I want to give you the gift of other people, and the fact that you're called to love them, just as I overflowed in love, you're called to overflow in love. This isn't about project self, this is about becoming like me. And let's just, just acknowledge just how brilliant this is. Jesus is breaking out of the frame that he's been put in. you only allowed one. He goes, no, yeah, I've got to have two. And this is still acknowledged by many people around the world as being the greatest ethic. If they had to say, how do you navigate your life? What grid do you use? It's like, well, I just treat other people like I'd want myself to be treated, right? This is the golden rule. It remains as a stunning, timeless truth, proving again that Jesus, no matter what your thoughts on him as Lord and Savior, is just an incredible teacher. See, what he's doing is he's taking the law and showing that the law, if you don't have love, you're never going to understand the law. At the same time, he says, if all you think is important is love, and you don't have the law, you're going to be good inten- good intentions, but just lost in a world that I have made. He brings love and the law together. As my favorite Tim Keller quote, man, <laughs> Tim Keller quote. Here it comes. Basically, you know, every week, he said, Jesus shows us that love actually defines the lawful life, and that the law actually defines the loving life. He ties them together. Love God, love your neighbor. Essentially gets us to the point we realise it's not about avoiding a whole bunch of stuff and then saying, Phew, God, I made it. I'm in the grave. I'm so relieved. I didn't do a whole bunch of stuff. Look, I didn't do drugs. I didn't smoke. I didn't hey. Okay, it's a very British way to view the world. God's saying is, no, 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 it's not about what you failed to do. It's about what you did do, what the law was actually trying to get after, which is did you love God and love others? You see, Jesus is actually quoting from Leviticus at this point, Leviticus 19. I'll pop the verse up here. This is the verse. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's Jesus not coming up with some New Testament thing. No, this has been around since Leviticus has been written, love your neighbor as yourself. And just as we went into Deuteronomy 6 to go, okay, what does it mean to love God? Oh, it means to keep his commandments. It means to teach the future generations. So likewise, if we go look at Leviticus, now don't worry, you don't have to read the whole thing, but I'm going to pop it up here. You'll notice the heading at the top, there's love your neighbor as yourself. There's a whole passage here that doesn't leave you wondering, "Mm, what does it mean to love my neighbor? There's actually a whole bunch in here. It means you've got to care for the poor. It means you mustn't steal mustn't lie, you must be fair in business dealings, you must care for the deaf, care for the blind, deal justly with all, avoid slander, you mustn't jeopardize the life of your neighbor, you mustn't hate your brother in your heart, mustn't rebuke your neighbor, Uh, I mean, sorry, you must rebuke your neighbor where necessary for their good, but you mustn't take a revenge or bear grudge against others. Jesus doesn't leave us wondering what does it mean to love our neighbor. That whole passage is about what that actually could look like. So incredibly, Jesus asked, what's, what's it all about? And he's answering, no, it's about loving God and loving people. And in both cases, there's a whole bunch of teaching that can help us do that. Let's read on. How, how does the scribe respond? The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher or rabbi, he would have said. You've truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's going, no, this is good. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Isn't this interesting, right? Jesus Jesus says, "Okay, you're close." And how do you, right now, respond? Okay, where is he? Where is he missing? <laughs> like, I mean, uh, that's how I feel when I listen to something like this. Is Jesus is Jesus just saying, "Okay, I've given you the option, love God, love people," and I've kind of given you the option. I'm going to go to a grave now, and you've got an option. Choose, and I can end the sermon there. Is that is that all that's happening? Not quite. See, Jesus doesn't end there. He says to him, "You're not quite there." And now we're going to fly through. Quick, three quick little moments where Jesus shows them where he's missing it. He says, you're almost there. Let me quickly show you the bits that you are missing. You're not far from the kingdom of God, but you can miss it if you've got the wrong view of who God is, if you've got the wrong view of who you are and what you're up to, and if you've got the wrong view of, of other people in this life. Jesus goes onto a teaching spree here. Let's have a look from verse 35. Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So he's been asked lots of questions. Now he starts to ask questions. The direction of flow has changed. It says there, people are so amazed. They stopped asking questions. And now Jesus says, okay, now I'm gonna start asking some questions. He says to them, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Scriptures declared, and now Jesus starts quoting from Psalm 110, the most quoted bit of the Old Testament and the whole of Jesus' teaching. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The great throng heard him gladly. Now this is something Jesus has pointed out to a hero of this of this group, which is David, King David. And everyone has always said, the Messiah is gonna come in the line of David. We're gonna celebrate now as we start the countdown to Advent, moving towards Christmas. We're gonna talk about how, we go back to David's town hey, of Bethlehem because he's gonna be born in the line of David. And everyone's very excited. And Jesus just asked the question. He have you noticed, this person is a son of David, but why is he calling him Lord? Why is he calling him Lord if he's gonna be actually his great, 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 great grandchild? Something's going on here. We've said the Lord is one, but yet the one who's coming, it looks like he's going to be more than just a son of David. It looks like he's going to be the son of God as well. Have you ever thought about that? And he, and he says to them, you know, you might miss life and what it's really about because you have the wrong view of God. Yes, the Lord is one, but he's actually going to be sending his son. He's going to be sending his spirit. There's going to be something incredible here, which we've summed up with the word Trinity, but really what it means is that there's a God of love who in diversity is yet unified, and out of that love, loves us. So he asks a question, and he says, you know, David is actually anticipating me and my arrival, but he's not yet done speaking the truth. If you have ever heard the phrase, hey man, we just need to love like Jesus loves? We're not here to judge. Have you ever heard that? We're not here to judge. Love like Jesus loves. Just keep reading with me. This is what Jesus does. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honored feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The gloves are off. How awkward right now if you're wearing a long robe and you're sitting in the best seats of the temple, right? Jesus is not shy. He loves you, and that's why he's now talking about how you can not just have the wrong view of God, you can have the wrong view of yourself. Maybe the best way to describe this is through a story. There once was a farmer who uh, was so grateful for this massive carrot that had grown on his land that he took the carrot and he gave it to the king. And he said, King, I've been blessed with good weather, I've certainly brought my labor, but this is a, a... overabundant carrot, here's the carrot, it's for you as a, as a thanks, and the king looks at him and says, you've given me this carrot, and I would like to give you all these lands in return, he says, well, thank you, and he goes off, and there's someone watching this, and he goes, this is, I've worked this out, this is amazing, and the next day he arrives with his best horse, and he's stroked the horse, and the horse is looking fine, he says, oh, king, I just want to thank you so much, and here is my horse, and the king says, thank you awkward silence, and he's sort of like, hey, uh, yesterday, carrot guy, lands. you know, like, I brought you a horse. He says, yes. see, he gave me a carrot, but what you did today is, you gave yourself the horse. It's an important difference. He presented something to God, but truthfully, that wasn't about God or the Lord. It was about himself. He was like, return, cost benefit. Here's my horse. Give it to me. Right, so that's what Jesus is essentially teaching us, and you can miss your devotion to God. You can be a Pharisee walking around saying, I'm doing all of this for God, but actually the truth is you're doing all of this for yourself and that is a massive problem and it's a a wrong view of God. God isn't some kind of equation that the cost-benefit analysis is entered into, a kind of investment portfolio for the eternal life, divine insurance for after this life. No, your relationship with God is based much more on love and, and sacrificial devotion to Him, that's when you see how, truly know that you've seen Him for how He truly is. A final story, warning from Jesus is, this. He sat down opposite the treasury, watched the people putting money in the offering box. Again, how awkward is this moment, right? Jesus checking out everyone doing their EFTs. Wealth is such <laughs> like a private thing. Jesus is like, no, I'm going to go there. I want to talk about these things. Let's keep reading, many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all these others contributing to the offering box. For they have all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. All of this has taken place in the temple. The temple is the place where God dwells. It's supposed to be where heaven and earth collide. And here's someone who in their poverty has got gripped by who God is and they're giving it all. They're devoted. And I think what Jesus is most grieved about is the lack of celebration, the lack of, wow, God is doing something here. Transformed life is at work. It's kind of like, okay, two coins, what's the big deal here? And God's saying, no, this is what it's all about. Imagine the degree to which her life has been transformed that she would be prepared to give it all for me. And as a community, we should be gathering around her and supporting her, not sort of going, okay, what's going on here, and moving on. And next week, Steph's gonna be with us, and he's gonna talk about how Jesus very quickly judges the whole temple system, and essentially says this whole thing's gonna fall. He talks about the abomination of the desolation. Next week, it's gonna be quite exciting. These are Jesus' words. It gets hectic. And why he's talking about this, he's saying, guys, what should be about a heaven on earth has become a place where we're actually not marveling at transformed lives. We're kind of just going... Donald English commenting on this says this may seem to be a somewhat idyllic way to end a stormy chapter but we should not be misled the issue with Jesus at the center is still about giving all total trust utter commitment and so her life has been transformed by God and the community is going to get around her that's what Jesus would love and support her in the same way we as a community want to gather around people where God's at work and to support and care for and so every, every time we gather, we trust in God for life transformation and we come from totally different economic places sometimes. And I'd love you to notice that our job as a, as a church is to get around people and work with a whole bunch of NGOs and organizations in our city that are doing great work, but to also uniquely look at what we can bring, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And on some Sundays, there are people who gather to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And there are those that are really um, not gathering to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They're gathering to ask for things, uh, physical needs. And, and, And what we do in those moments, I think we serve well when we say, hey, in Sundays, we aren't here to primarily meet physical needs. Come during the week on Tuesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon. There are a group of people that meet in the hall. We're all about that. There's lunch that gets served. There's a teaching. There's ministry. So feel free to come on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons from 1 p.m. onwards. But when we gather on Sundays, we're here to look at Christ and to pour out our devotion to Him and to pray for Him and to partner with the NGOs in our cities for the rest of the week as well. So let's bring it all to land and let's invite the Holy Spirit to work the loudest voice in our lives. Is it one of those heroes, Musk, Bezos, and Oprah, Mandela? Is it a voice inside, a collection of various wounds or events that we've had that we've kind of learned some maxims that we apply? Or is it, is it God's words? Is it Jesus' words just saying, love God, open up your life to God, and then receiving His love, love others. God's not calling us to do something He hasn't done for Himself. And I'd love you to uh, respond with me by standing uh, there's a there's a band that's going to come up as well and i'd love you to see the scripture that's yeah stand, stand now, sorry, good work, front row, you are first I want us to look at uh, the truth that Jesus didn't just give this teaching and, and not live it himself and so i'm going to read this passage to us from john uh, one one John, a letter um, and I want to see see that this is something which, which can help guide our response. So let's read it. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a a word that captures what happened on the cross. It speaks about the truth that he is our substitute. He stood on our behalf. And whilst our rebellion and our sin is something we all have in common, the salvation he offers and the righteousness he offers is something we can respond to today. And we can say I want to experience homecoming, not because of what I've done, not because I love God first, but because His Son came, and He loved me first. Beloved, John goes on, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. God, as we respond now in song, we want to respond to Your love. Some people for the first time want to to receive your love. Maybe a prayer you could pray is, God, I make myself available to hear from you. Come Holy Spirit is a prayer we can all pray, the truth of God. If you've got a contribution you'd like to bring, a verse, a scripture, an encouragement, Greg at the front would be happy to facilitate that. We're gonna have a time now of responding to this perfect love of God. Let's worship together.